We're going through a new series, and it's called, I Don't Know Where to Start, Learning to Share Your Faith with Others. Um, We're not all that great at talking to others about our faith. Uh, Sometimes we either get nervous and so we don't say anything, or we get angry or flustered and so we say things that we regret. If we practice now, if we train now, if we learn now, uh, we're, just, we're just betting that then those conversations would go even better. In our small groups, we're learning how to share our faith. Sunday morning, we're learning how to share our faith. We've already talked about origin. Where did everything come from? How do I talk to people about the beginning? We've uh, talked about the meaning of life. Why are we here? How do I talk to other people about the meaning of life? Now we're on to morality. What's right? What's wrong? And when moral conversations come up, how do I speak with clarity, conviction, and humility? That's the goal for this morning. Now, sometimes it is easy to see, it's clear as day, what's right and what's wrong. So check this picture out. It's pretty easy to discern what's bad, what's good, what's evil, what's not, according to this picture, right? Um, On this next picture, the same is true. You see on the one hand, Cruella de Vil, and then you see on the other hand, the tiny little Dalmatians. Good and evil. Um, This next picture is something very wicked. Uh, It's a Lego after being stepped on. And this next picture is something very good. It's an invention to help you avoid stepping. Christmas gift, Christmas gift. (laughs) What do you want for Christmas? Now, often when you're talking to someone about a moral issue, um, it's clear there's right and wrong. This person clearly did a wrong thing. Um, but actually, frequently, when you have moral conversations, it's complex. Um, you have to weigh carefully who is right, who is wrong, who is bad, who is good. What part of that person's choice was wrong? What part of it was right? And it, it gets so complicated that if, if we're not careful, it'll just turn into this fog. And then in the end, as we're talking to the other person, they'll say, well, you know what? That's just your opinion. And you don't feel like you got anywhere because there's just this fog of right and wrong and who, who's to judge and you didn't really get anywhere. I think a, a great picture to illustrate the, uh, the ambiguity of right and wrong is, is this picture. So tell me who this is. Come on, who is it? Uh-huh. Who, who else is it? Mm. So is that person on the screen good or evil? Depends on the movie. Am I right? You could make a case that he's one of the most wicked beings who has ever, not really lived, but you can make a case that he is one of the best individuals in the end. Uh, but it's, it's complicated, right? And I think when you have conversations about right and wrong, it's going to be complicated. We're going to learn today what makes our view of morality unique and how you can take our view of morality, apply it to any moral conversation, and it can result in clarity and conviction as you talk to others. Let's pray, and then we'll get into the Bible together. Father, we're grateful that you have revealed to us right and wrong, good and bad. We're grateful that you have revealed yourself to us and your own nature. But we live in a world with people who disagree with us and who object to the teaching about you. So give us grace and wisdom as we aim to share our faith with others. We pray this in your name. Amen. Now, in learning how to share our faith with others, we're spending a lot of time learning how to ask questions. One of the worst things you can do if a spiritual conversation starts is to begin just preaching what you believe, okay? 
It's best to start finding out with a loving heart what the other person really thinks. The way you do that is by asking questions. Here's a good question that you can ask a person when any moral issue comes up. Jot this down. Question, where do you get your morality? Where do you get your morality? You can use this when someone makes a statement about current events, political candidates, (laughs) football replays, you know, uh, if, if a conversation starts and a person makes any moral judgment, you can say, hey, where do you get your morals? And everyone gets their morals from somewhere. Maybe it's the government. Well, it's legal. Maybe it's personal opinion. Well, I've always said, maybe it's a show of hands. Well, the polls indicate that people agree with me, this percent of people, show of hands. Maybe it's historical trends. Well, throughout history, humanity has believed. Um, Maybe it's pop culture. You know, what world do you live in? As if just because you're out of sync with what stars and musicians believe that you're wrong. You know, um, maybe it's family. Well, you know, my mother always said. But whether it comes from family or pop culture, history, show of hands, personal opinion, or government, everyone gets their morality from a variety of sources. When someone makes a moral claim, when they disagree with your moral claim, it's always good to force them to go all the way up to the headwaters of their morality and define where their morals come from. What's our answer? If they say, well, where do you get your morals? Jot this down. We believe everything right and good comes from God's will and nature. We believe everything that's right and everything that's good comes straight from God's will and from God's nature. What is the nature of good? We believe that good is good because God is good. And we think that there is this supreme being who is only, always, eternally good. From his will comes good. From his nature comes good. You can trace it straight back to the character of our God. That's where it comes from. Now, the Bible reveals that goodness comes from God. And the Bible is very aware of the problem of evil. So it will say that God is good, and it will say that the world is evil. And the Bible works to help us bridge that gap. If God is so good, why is the world so evil? For example, check out Habakkuk 1.13. We'll put it on the screen. It says this about God. You who are of, listen to this, purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Listen to that description of God. This description of God is a God who, even if his eyes fall on evil, he's like, ah, I can't even look at that. This is, God doesn't literally have eyes. This is a way of describing his nature. He's so good and so pure that he will have no personal encounter with evil. Why do you, but then here's the question. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Do you see how the Bible affirms God's goodness? And yet it also raises the issue, God, if you're so good, how come so many evil things happen? The Bible asks the question and answers it. The reason why this is important is because when you make the assertion, you know where I get morals? I get my morals from the goodness of God. People will be right there ready to object to that. Well, if your God's so good, how come there's so much evil in the world? How come this happened to me? How come this happened in the Bible? They will object to your statement that God is only always eternally good. What will you say when they challenge your view of the goodness of God? You don't need to back down from these questions, but here's 
four examples of things that you can say if someone challenges the goodness of God. You can say this, hey, God can permit evil and still be good. God can permit evil and still be good. You can say to the other person, hey, if, if in your life have you ever done anything bad? Now, they've got a problem because if they say no, then they're perfectly holy, which makes them a God. If they say, yeah, I've done evil, then that's a problem. Because if they say, how can a good God allow evil to exist? That means if God did want to remove all evil from the world, guess who's leaving the world? Them. So they really don't want a world empty of all evil. And they're pretty selective about which evil they want out of the world. So when someone says that, well, how can you believe in a good God who allows evil? Well, he allows you, and he allows me, and I'm pretty happy he does. You can also say this, God allows evil temporarily, but he uses it to serve his purposes, and he promises to overthrow it. Hey, you know what? God's allowing evil for now, but the Bible calls these light and momentary afflictions. They're light and they're momentary. And one day, God's going to rid the universe of everything evil. He promises to overthrow it. So he can still allow it, and consistently he can be good. Okay? You can also say this. Hey, listen, without a divine standard of good, you can't even define evil. You can't even define it. You take God out of the picture, tell me what's wrong. Define evil without a definition of what good is. You can't. If you lose God, you lose the ability to call anything objectively evil because there's no such thing as good. So how can there be such thing as evil? It's all subjective. Finally, you can say, hey, without a good God, you can't validate suffering. So if they say to you, well, how can a good God allow so many people, good people, to suffer? Hey, listen, if you get rid of God... Suffering means nothing. There's no higher purpose to your pain. There's no hope that your pain is leading you anywhere good. Is that the world you want to live in? Where your pain is purposeless? Where it's taking you nowhere good? You see, if you get rid of God, you don't get rid of the problem of evil or suffering. You get rid of the solution and the definition. You can't even define it anymore, let alone solve it. So listen, if somebody pushes back and says, oh yeah, your God is good, I don't, don't back down. Tell them, God can permit evil and still be good. He allows it temporarily, he's going to overthrow it. Without a good standard, you can't even define evil. And without a good God, the pain in this life means nothing. You need God. Everything right and good comes from God's will and nature. That's what we believe about the nature of good. Good is good because God is good. That's where we get good. Okay, but what about evil? What do we believe about the source of evil? Where did the problem come from? Well, jot this down. We believe everything wrong and bad comes from violating God's will in nature. The nature of evil is that somehow a person violates God's will, his law, or they act against his person, his being, his nature. All right? Evil, it's crucial that you understand this. Evil always comes from good things. When people are making evil as if it's a cake, there are always great ingredients in there. 
which is why it's so easy to justify evil. You can reason your way into every sin that's out there because there's always ingredients of good in the bad you're doing. How could you talk to your mother that way? No one should talk to your mother that way. Oh, well, let me tell you some of the things she did to me when I was a kid. All right, well, now you have a few good reasons to be upset, but with those good reasons to be hurt, you conjured up this very wicked thing to do to your parent. Do you see how it takes good to justify evil? Think of what's going on in the world right now. Why did the terrorists bomb Paris? Why? Because they just wanted to show the world how wicked and deplorable and evil they are? No, because Paris is filled with prostitution. Are we all in agreement that prostitution is a sin and very wrong? That means you agree with the terrorists, but did they take a good thing and do a bad thing with it? Yes. But do you see how it came? It came from good ingredient. Prostitution is bad. We should do something about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Then let's do that. No. Too far. That's the nature of evil. Evil takes good and it makes bad from it. What is rape? Wrong, evil, wicked, and yet it comes from good desires. It, it is good actions that were designed for righteous pleasure, but they are done in an ungodly manner. Do you see how it's taking good ingredients, but it's doing them in an ungodly way? Why is violence wrong? Usually violence happens because someone has a righteous anger towards something, right? They shouldn't have said that to me. They shouldn't have done that to me. They, they need to be punished. Right, right, right. So I'm going to grab the bat. Wrong. It takes good components to make evil, which is why you can always self-justify your sinful choices. Everything wrong and bad comes from violating God's will and His nature. Romans 1.18 gives us an insight into our view of evil. It says this. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all, listen to these two words, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Ungodliness means you're sinning against the person and the nature of God. You're against God. Unrighteousness means you're sinning against the law of God, the will of God. And then it says, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, which means they know better. Whenever we sin, we know better. You know, some people say, I'm not like a murderer. I don't do wicked things. Okay, you're calling yourself self-righteous. But if the God of the universe who made you and gave you everything means nothing to you, you're an ungodly person no matter how righteous you think you are. You can give to the needy. You can go on trips and feed the hungry. But if you haven't talked to your father in 25 years, you're a wicked person because you are sinning relationally against someone who has given you everything. Do you see how neglecting a relationship can be a great evil? And people who think that they fill their life with all of these good things and they say they're righteous, but they're ungodly, They're without God, they're against God, are wicked. You know the feeling. If your kids write you off in a moment of anger and don't talk to you for 20 years, it doesn't matter how much they give to their church. They are sinning against you in the way they're neglecting their relationship with you. And that's the nature of sin. We can can neglect or blaspheme our relationship with God or we can break His law. Both are punishable by hell. So, Sin comes from being uh, violating God's will and his nature. But it takes good to be bad. C.S. Lewis talks a lot about the nature of evil. 
Uh, one of his books is called Mere Christianity, and in it he says this, Badness is only spoiled goodness. He says, and do you now begin to see why Christianity has said that the devil is a fallen angel? That is not a mere story for the children. It is a real recognition of the fact that evil is a parasite, not an original thing. The powers which enable evil to carry on are powers given it by goodness. All the things which enable a bad man to be effectively bad are in themselves good things. How can a good God allow evil to happen? It takes good to warp it and to make evil things. That's how those two things come together. But our view is that morality comes from the goodness of God. Immorality comes when we violate the goodness of God. All right, here's another question you can ask. Jot this down. You've already asked the person, where do you get your morality? Tell me where you get your morality. Now you can ask them, what's your solution to the problem of evil? Describe for me the perfect world. How are you going to fix what's broken with humanity? It's not enough for the people who disagree with you to say, you church people think you know everything, and you know what? Your Bible stinks, and your God's wicked, and I don't agree with you. Okay, tell me your solution. They can't just say your answer stinks. They need to tell you their answer. What's your solution to the problem of wickedness and evil in the world? Define it and solve it. You learn a lot about their heart when you learn about their solution. And when you ask this question, don't just let them talk about the evil things around them. Oh, if I could talk to those terrorists, here's what I would say. Oh, man, those political candidates, here's what I think about them. Hey, what about the evil you find within yourself? What's your solution to the problem of evil within yourself? How are you going to get rid of that? And they're going to be tempted to say, what do you mean evil? But if they say there's no evil, then they claim to be a God, which is a problem. They have to admit they have a sin problem in them. It's not just around them. What's the solution? Make them tell you. Listen lovingly. I'd love to hear your solution to the problem of evil and wickedness. And then give your answer. Here's our answer. My answer is Christ. Christ is morally unique and necessary in the lives of everyone. Hey, you want to know what I think? Here's what I think. I think goodness comes from God. Wickedness comes from violating God's law. The only way I can become a good person, the only solution to the evil I find inside of myself and around myself is the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing that's evil within me will get fixed without him. All of the wickedness I find in the world around me will continue on and on and on until he sets it straight. He is our hope. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore, he's morally unique, and he's necessary. What do I mean by that? What makes Jesus so special, the only solution to this problem of evil? Well, Jesus is the only one who is perfectly good and righteous. God never had to make him good. God never had to teach him righteousness. He's always been good. Does the Bible teach this? Yes, 1 John 2.1. 1 John 2.1 says this, My little children... I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, listen, the righteous. The righteous. No one ever had to mediate God's relationship with his Son. No one ever had to say, Jesus, you're broken away from the Father. I'm going to bring the two of you back together. 
The Lord Jesus is the only one who has enjoyed an eternal, unbroken bond with the Father. It's because he's righteous. He's unique. He's one of a kind. And when he stepped down into this world, light into the darkness, he came in as the only righteous person who's ever lived. And he lived the perfect life. In the book of Hebrews, it says he lived without sin. Because of that, he could be a substitute on the cross, a righteous substitute to do away with evil and to bring righteousness into your life. He's one of a kind. Jesus is the solution. If you want a consistent definition of what evil is, here it is. Whatever evil you see in all of its forms comes from a heart that's not being controlled by Christ. That's the source of all evil. People will sometimes say, oh, Christians, they're the most sinful people I know. I've seen churches split. I've seen pastors fail. Yeah, here's my definition of evil. Evil always comes from a heart not being controlled by Christ. In the church, in the world, in my heart. The only answer to the problem of evil is not church. It's Christ. And therefore, all evil actions and expressions show what happens when a heart is not controlled by Christ. And the only solution is for Christ to be in control of the world and the church. Now, if this is what we believe, that Jesus is the only solution to the problem of evil, how does that measure up to the standards of other worldviews? How do other worldviews define evil and how do they plan to solve it? You can get a lot of clarity by contrasting our view with others. And often you've heard it said, well, all religions basically teach the same thing. They're just different on the outside, but primarily they're the same. Is that true? Let's check it out. Let's begin by talking about what atheists and naturalists think about good and evil. Here's a chart that'll be really helpful. Um, Atheists would say there's no God. Naturalists would say there's only the universe. And even if they say maybe there could be a God, they think we can never know him, so it doesn't matter. Those would be deists. Here's the thing. They think everything came from an empty box. The whole universe spilled out of nothing. They have no explanation for where everything came from. It was dumped out of nothing, an empty box. Because it was spilled out on the ground like Scrabble letters randomly, they can have no defensible moral code because they have nothing to anchor morality in. It doesn't, when they're carrying around the anchor, where are we going to anchor our morality? Wherever they throw it, it lands in nothing. You can't pull morality out of an empty box. They have no rational, defensible reason to tell you you can't do anything. Now, they might point to laws and culture, but what if the laws of one land are different from another? Who's right, who's wrong, they can't say. There is no way that they can produce a rational, moral law that applies to everyone from an empty box. They can't. Now, do they live decently? Do they try and act charitably? Do they love? Yeah, but they don't have to. And you don't have to because they have no reason to expect anyone to be moral. They can't even define it. So if they can't define what's good, if everything just is, they can't define what's bad and they can't solve it. They have no legitimate solution to the problem of evil. In fact, in the end, you'll die, your DNA will be passed on, and you'll be non-existent. Now, what's convenient about that is no one will ever hold you accountable for all the sins of your life. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with everyone getting away with everything forever? Hitler, 
scot-free. Bin Laden, nobody will ever call him into judgment. Stalin, he died and it's gone. No justice ever. That's not the world I want to live in, where everyone gets away with everything because there's no standard of righteousness or judgment in the end. I don't like that world. In Psalm 10:4, it says this, In his pride, the wicked does not seek him. In all of his thoughts, there's no room for God. It's really the pride of man that would say there is no God, and it's really the pride of man that would say, I'm going to get away with everything forever and no one's ever going to hold me accountable. That's pride. Their view is different from ours. They, they fail to even define evil, let alone solve the problem. Where are they? Where are they when tragedy strikes? Where are they when the towers fall? Where are they? They don't show up. On behalf of the cold, dark chaos of the universe, I bring my condolences. You bring nothing. You bring no warmth or explanation or definition of right or wrong. You have an empty box. They're very different from what we believe. They can't define evil or solve it. Okay, let's move on to Buddhism. Um, what do Buddhists believe? Well, here's the chart. It actually, that's actually a picture of one of their gods, Ganesh. And uh, when it comes to... Uh, actually, that picture was out of place. That comes next. When it comes to Buddhism, they believe, when it comes to origin, that everything came from nothing. Uh, it's an atheistic faith. But their people do worship gods. They borrow them from the Hindus because they have a craving to interact with the divine. But if you trace it back to their founder, Buddhism is an atheistic faith. They believe there is no God. They think, get this, they think there is no universe. So it's a bit worse than natural atheism. At least atheism admits there is a universe that came into being. Buddhists, at the heart of their faith, think that nothing exists right now. It's an illusion. Is that what you believe? You believe right now nothing really exists and one day you'll wake up to that and then you'll begin non-existing forever. I don't believe that. That's very, very different from what I believe. They deny that there is even a real universe right now. Since they deny that everything exists and that if you tear away the illusion, there's really nothing behind reality, uh, their morality is based on the fact that wanting things is wrong. You problem, the reason why we do bad things is because we want things. We want things because we think this universe is real. Once we realize this universe isn't real, then we won't want anything, then we won't ever sin, then we'll just get blown out like a candle and uh, we'll all never exist forever. Their moral code is very different from ours. They They define sin as want. Listen, every single thing you desire is sin. You should want nothing ever again. The solution to the human moral problem is you can't desire anything ever again. Take that theology with you Christmas shopping. (laughs) Everything I want is sin? Yes. It's the source of all human suffering. Desire. Is that what we believe? No. We believe our desires are given to us by God and that God will supremely fill our hearts with a fulfillment of those desires. We're not supposed to empty ourselves of desire. We're supposed to find the fulfillment of those desires in God. Which is why Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Desires are good because God is good. But finding those desires being met in God is the righteous way to do it. We, We disagree with the Buddhists on what sin is. They have a different way of defining the problem and solving the problem, and it's, 
Eventually, their solution to the problem is human extinction. The best of all possible worlds is a world where no one exists ever again. That's a different view of heaven than mine. Those two things aren't the same, and they can't both be true at the same time. Their founder was also immoral. He was a sinful, fallen man, just like you and me. Do you know, as the story goes with Buddha, the founder of Buddhism, that he went off on his quest for enlightenment the night that his wife gave birth. He walked away from his wife the night she gave birth to go off on his quest for enlightenment. And they praise him for it because it shows his willingness to abandon all to find enlightenment. That's a very immoral thing to do. That's a terrible example to set for humanity. A man who leaves his wife on the night she gives birth is not fulfilling his search for purpose. He's abandoning it. Their founder is immoral and fallen. He was self-absorbed. He walked away from his Hindu tradition and he came up with a very depressing religion that will not lead people to heaven. Buddhists have a very different view of right and wrong, good and evil than we do, and therefore they have a different solution to the problem that doesn't involve Jesus Christ. We believe Jesus is unique and we believe he's necessary. We think Buddhists need Jesus to get saved because their plan won't work. What about Hindus? We have a picture here of one of the Hindu gods, Ganesh, which we showed a second ago. Uh, We have another picture of Hindus worshiping and uh, a Hindu worship service going on there. What do Hindus actually believe, and how is that different from our view? Um, Hindus believe the universe doesn't exist, like Buddhists, but they think if you tear away the curtain of this reality, there is something, um, and, and that something is God. They would say that there's no distinction between the universe and God. Only God exists. Therefore, they would say that the physical world you live in is not real. It's just a divine dream. It's a projection. It's a spiritual illusion that's set up. You think you're living, but you're not. Everything around you is just a, um, it's, it's just an expression of the divine. Now, we believe different things. I, I don't think this music stand and this wood on the floor is God. I don't think the world is made of a spiritual being. I think that a spiritual being made the world, and the world is distinct. Creator and creation are two different things. The essence of the word holiness means other. Our God is outside of everything this world is. Okay, So you see the world differently from Hindus. They think only God exists, and this world is a divine illusion. Now, they do think that in the heavenly realms there are multiple gods, millions of them. They do think that all is God, but they think that there are multiple gods that express this one God. But they have a problem. Their gods are very immoral. Their gods don't abide by the moral code that they teach. Their gods aren't even righteous. So here's a picture of this god again, Ganesh. We can put this up there. Uh, Why does he have an elephant's head? Um, It's because his father, who was also a god, was trying to get home to his wife, and he didn't know that Ganesh was his son. And so he's like, get out of my way. And the son's like, no. And so the dad chopped his head off. And then he felt bad because he decapitated his own son, so he went and found a replacement head. These are their gods. Their gods sin. Uh, In another instance, one of their gods, uh, their greatest god, Brahma, was lusting after his own daughter which is a sin, and the gods even know that, so God chopped one of his heads off. Their gods sin. 
Their gods can't even righteously keep the moral code they try to keep. They have different gods, and they have a different view of the world. Here's the problem. If their gods are sinful and the universe is only God, that means that this whole universe is fundamentally an immoral thing. And there's no hope of their gods getting righteous, let alone their followers. Hinduism has a different view of reality. It's very immoral. Their gods are immoral. They would say, you're born into sin, you have moral debt, and you'll suffer because of it. It's fuzzy if you ask them who's keeping track of karma, but they believe you're, you're here, uh, your soul has existed for millions of years, you just put on a different outfit every life you live. And you're paying off your sinful moral debt. Who's keeping track of how immoral I've been? They don't know. But somehow they think that it's fair, and they assume that without any rationale. So here's the chart. When it comes to Hinduism, they think all is God. They have contradictory explanations of morality. What's the solution? The solution is one day, one of their gods will get so fed up, like he's done millions of times before, he'll annihilate the whole universe and reabsorb it in himself, and then we'll go another round. He'll create the illusion all again. That's the solution. Total universal annihilation, absorption into God, and then we do the whole thing over again, and it never ends. That's a different solution than we have. Their gods are different. Their definition of evil is different. How evil is tracked is different. Sometimes their gods come down. Krishna was allegedly a god, one of their gods who came down. And his life was recorded in their holiest book, the Bhagavad Gita. And um, in that, uh, it records that Krishna, who was one of their gods who had come down, had 16,000 wives. And he was able to be with all of them every night. Would that be morally equivalent to our Lord Jesus Christ? A man who comes down from heaven and has 16,000 wives? Uh, Their founder, or one of their expressions of God, one of their chief influencers, is very different than ours. He doesn't live by the same moral code, nor do their gods, nor does their universe. So they can't define evil without contradictions in heaven, and they can't solve it. They just keep redoing the universe over and over. Hindus need Jesus. Their system can't save them. Their gods can't save them. And we have to get away from this polite view that as long as people believe their thing, they'll probably be okay. No, they won't. Believing that a sinful God will absorb the whole universe back into his being and recreate another illusion won't save. Won't save. Can't save. Jesus is morally unique. He's the only righteous one who is perfect and holy. And therefore, he's necessary to everyone. Buddhists and Hindus and atheists, they need Jesus. What about Muslims? Let's talk about Islam. Muslims, here's a picture of Muslims uh, worshiping. um, Second biggest religion in the world. uh, So many faithful adherents and so many are devoted uh, to their faith. What do we think about their view? How do we talk to them about evil and right and wrong and good and bad? I want to model for you how we can be gracious in our conversation toward them and their view. Um, We have a lot in common with Muslims. Uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are the uh, monotheistic religions. They think there is one God. Check out this chart. Um, Islam, they believe in creation. They think God is different from the universe, which puts them apart from Hindus and Buddhists. Um, And they think that God is a moral God. He will judge according to some objective standard found within himself. The solution, though, to the sin problem found in every human, 
um, is religious rituals. They think that because you do bad, uh, you have to pile up enough good deeds, fasting and praying and, uh, and re- reciting the Quran. You have to pile up enough good deeds so that hopefully Allah will accept you into paradise. Here's the thing. They have a different standard of judgment. Um, Allah does not reveal himself as a good God in the way our God does. He doesn't really even reveal his nature. He's not a loving God. He doesn't have to be. The supreme important attribute of Allah, the God of the Muslims, is his sovereignty. He has a will. You do it. And his will is supreme, and it even transcends any human understanding of good and bad. Which means if you become the most righteous being you can on this planet, and you appear before him in judgment, he can just say no, and off you go. No questions asked. He is not bound by any moral code because he hasn't revealed himself to be any sort of moral being. He just has a will. You do it, period. He doesn't need to be good. He doesn't need to be loving. You don't even need to know him. You just do what he says. Muslims leave this world with no assurance they're going to heaven. They don't know they're going to heaven. They can't know. They don't know God. They can't know him. That's not the point. They just do what they're told. God is a will, and you just do his will. And that will is not often governed by his good nature, which means they can justify doing very immoral things in the name of the will of their God. Muslims have a different definition of morality than us, a different standard of judgment. They do think there will be justice. They think an angel sits on each one of your shoulders recording every single thing you've done, good and bad, in your life. There will at least be a presentation, an honest, accurate presentation of your good and bad on the judgment day. Allah just doesn't need to care about it. He doesn't need to be just. He can do what he wants. Their God is very different from ours. Their morality is very different from ours. And their founder is very different from ours. They believe Muhammad, in theory, was sinful just like you and me. They would say that. Um, But they call him the man who has attained perfection. The man who has attained perfection. Which is a contradiction. Because the early Muslim historians have well documented the immorality of their founder. It's very easy to read up on the immorality of their founder. And it's their historians who are writing it. And yet they call him the man who has attained perfection. When you compare their founder with Jesus, there is no comparison. He is a fallen, immoral man. So they have a different view of right and wrong. They have a different plan. They have a different God. They have a different founder. Um, How are they going to get rid of the problem of evil? Allah will do whatever he wants, period. They don't have a consistent view of right and wrong, good and evil. It's just do what Allah says, period. That's different. It's different from what you believe. That's different from what I believe. The bottom line is the God of Islam cannot and will not take all the sins away from his people. He does not involve himself in the lives of the people, the suffering of the people. He's done nothing to come into this life and rid the earth of the suffering. You go before an arbitrary God who on who knows what basis of judgment will do whatever he wants. That's not the same as what you and I believe. Muslims need Jesus. They need him because only Jesus can take away their sin, introduce them to God, and promise them eternal life with God forever. I hope you see now by these charts that 
Jesus is morally unique compared to all the founders of other faiths. And he's necessary because these other views can't define evil properly or solve it according to their view. They're deficient. They don't work. And therefore, people need what you have. They need a Lord. They need a Savior. They need Jesus Christ. Here's our worldview. Here's our consistent worldview. We think everything came from a Father who made the world with His Son. Christ created all. We think that because we've all sinned, Christ alone, our Creator, came into this life, the only righteous person who ever lived. Therefore, He alone can offer forgiveness. He alone can take away your sin. He alone can give you righteousness. And both of those things need to happen. Jot this down. Jesus is the only solution to your problem with evil. You have no way of getting rid of the evil that you have done in your life. God must take it away. And our Bible says that God will take it away. It says he took it away, nailing it to the cross. Where will you, you're carrying your sin right now. Where will you take it? How will you get it off of you? You can't. God has to take it off. The only way he'll do that is if you come to his son. Only Jesus is qualified to take away your sin because he died in your place. He paid your debt. And at the cross, the power and the penalty of sin are done away with. Write this down. Jesus is also the only provision for your lack of goodness. You've done all of these wicked things and you've got that burden of sin on you. Someone needs to take it away. But then you're just not bad. But who is going to make you perfect in righteousness? Who is going to make you as if you've done everything right your whole life so you're flawless in the judgment? You can't do that. You can't start adding up good thing after good thing so that you are perfectly righteous. Jesus was perfectly righteous because he died in your place, because he rose again on the third day. Now, now he can wash your heart clean And then it says in the Bible that Christ in me is the hope of glory. When Christ comes into me, I have perfect righteousness. When God looks at me, he doesn't see the sinner anymore. He sees his son. Because his son stands in my place, I can be perfectly righteous and absence of evil. It's my only hope. No other system works. Any other system you turn to is the blind leading the blind. Deficient in defining the problem of evil and solving it, which is why our only hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me close by reading this by a man named James Stewart of Scotland, talking about what Jesus did for us on the cross and how he's unique and how he's necessary in the lives of everyone. It says this, They nailed him to the tree, not knowing that by that very act they were bringing the world to his feet. They gave him a cross, not guessing that he would make it a throne. They flung him outside the gates to die, not knowing that in that very moment they were lifting up all the gates of the universe to let the king come in. They fought to root out his doctrines, not understanding that they were implanting imperishably in the hearts of men the very name they intended to destroy. They thought they had God with his back to the wall, pinned, helpless, and defeated. They did not know that it was God himself who had tracked them down. He did not conquer in spite of the dark mystery of evil. He conquered through it, which is why only in Christ can it ever be said, it is finished. We have to share the truth of Christ with those we know, all of them. Their systems won't work. Their definitions aren't accurate. The solutions won't get them to heaven. 
Only Christ can do away with their problem of evil. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you alone are righteous and holy. You alone are the good shepherd. You alone are Savior. You stand in the presence of God right now. Your bond with the Father has never been broken. You have always done his will. So Jesus, we admit freely that we need you. We need you. We need you to take away our sin, to hurl it as far away from God as the east is from the west. We need you, Jesus, take away our sin. We need you to give us righteous standing in God's court of law. We need you to make us righteous. Enter into our hearts. Fill us with your perfect spirit. And in the judgment day when all of our deeds are weighed and we are found guilty of high treason against the holy God, worthy of hell forever, Jesus, stand in our defense. You're our only hope. You're the only way. Give us opportunities to talk to people who are clinging to fallen, sinful men. Give us an opportunity to talk to people who are following futile, contradictory systems of faith. Save, Lord, save through our testimony. Fill us with compassion for those who don't know you. We pray that salvation would come at your call. We pray this in Jesus' name.